Living and dying in the shadow of Mount Curse. We're looking today at John 4, verses 43 to the end of the chapter. And I'm thankful, very thankful, for the opportunity to wrap up John 4 today before we move into chapter 5 next week. And we're going to uh, look at John 4 under three headings. The first is undeniable history. Secondly, incurable curse, and thirdly, dishonorable motives. First, let's look at undeniable history. The promised land is made up of four north-south geographic uh, features or geologic features that are like vertical stripes. Uh, First is the coastal plains along the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the Philistines uh, lived. Um, the central hill country where most of the action of the Bible takes place. And uh, thirdly, the Jordan Rift Valley, which lies well below sea level. And finally, on the other side of the Jordan, the Transjordan Hills. Now look at number two, uh, stripe number two, uh, the hill country of Israel. As I said, that's where most of the action in the Bible took place. Drew calls it the center of the world. Uh, And the main road highway in the center of the world uh, went straight up along the peaks of this uh, central hill country, kind of like the Blue Ridge Parkway goes along the uh, ridges and peaks uh, of the Blue Ridge Range. Going from south to north, this famous road started at Beersheba in the southern desert, up through Hebron, uh, and then Bethlehem. Uh, the birthplace of the first Messiah, David, and uh, the last Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then it goes through Jerusalem, then up to Bethel. And by the way, from Jerusalem on up, this is the journey that our Lord Jesus took in John chapter 4. So Bethel, Shiloh, Shechem, that's where Sychar is, Samaria, and then the road descends into the stunningly beautiful valley of Jezreel before rising again to the famous town of Nazareth and then Cana. Now these days, tour guides call this route the Highway of the Patriarchs. And by the way, parents, you're, if you're, you're, you teach your kids the, these names, these places right here, uh, they'll be they'll have more Bible geography than the next hundred Christians, uh, and it will help them as they read the Bible and understand the events that, that take place. And if you add Dan at the very top, the city of Dan, you'll have Israel from Dan to Beersheba down south. Now, to anyone who loves the Scriptures and loves the Lord, the names of these cities and towns can't help but Uh, evoke powerful memories and deep emotions. I mean, one earth-shaking event after another after another happened, took place in these towns, including the most important event in the history of the world. Uh, People go to Israel to see these towns. Some of you have seen some of these towns. If you, uh, you can actually take this route by car, you take Route 60 straight north from Jerusalem up to Bethel and uh, all these other cities there. Uh, north of Bethel, and if you took, if you did this year, take a trip to Israel, uh, you and 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 went up on this highway of the patriarchs, uh, you uh, you would be deeply moved because you've read about all these places all your life, and then now you actually see them and remember the events that happened in these places, the history-shaking events. But in Jesus' time, hardly any Jews took that road. There were no tours up the valley of the the highway of the patriarchs. And why not? Because as Drew taught us, uh, from Bethel, which is just 10 miles north of, of Jerusalem, all the way up to the valley of Jezreel near Nazareth, that was the land of the Samaritans, the, the, uh, the half-breeds. Uh, half-breeds ethnically and also half-breeds religiously. Uh, They were actually cultists. 
So, oddly enough, Jews going from Jerusalem straight north to Galilee didn't go straight north. Here's a map of Jerusalem. And you, you see that they would leave from one of the east gates of Jerusalem in blue there. They'd go down the Kidron Valley and up the other side the, to the Mount of Olives. Uh, and then they'd go down, 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 below sea level, uh, all the way down to the area around Jericho. And then they would take one of the roads up uh, to Galilee. All that to avoid uh, the Samaritans. But in, for, in John chapter 4, Jesus took the direct route. And we don't know how many times he took this direct route, but at least once we find in John chapter 4. And uh, the shortcut didn't end up saving him any time at all. Just souls, saving souls, Samaritan souls, many, many Samaritan souls. So think about the Lord Jesus Christ on this famous road passing through famous city after famous city, and don't think that the Lord Jesus would not have experienced the similar emotions that you and I would experience if we uh, would go up this road and see these cities and towns. Yes, the Lord Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man, uh, full of love and emotion. Uh, and knowledge about these cities. In fact, he knew more about their histories than anybody who's ever lived. Why? Uh, because he was there for every single historical event that could have happened along the, the, uh, the, the, the road of the cities that, you, that we, just, we just looked at. He was there as God the Son during all their histories the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, second member of the Trinity. He was literally there during the entire histories of Jerusalem, Bethel, Shiloh, all the way up to Shechem, Samaria, Nazareth, etc. But now he was seeing these places perhaps for the first time as a human. So, as I said, they left this time from the northern gates likely. And as they did, they passed Golgotha. The disciples had no idea what would happen, what events would happen on that small mountain outside the northern gates. The Lord Jesus knew. Uh, and they walked about 10 miles north to Bethel. Uh, imagine the memories of Bethel that flooded Jesus's mind, the history of Bethel. It was the, one of the holiest towns in the history of Israel. It was the first place in the promised land where Abraham ever erected an altar to worship the living God. He uh, was like a, like a conqueror planting a flag in the sand. This, this land belongs to the Lord. Bethel was also where Jacob, running away from Esau, saw angels ascending and descending uh, from heaven and heard God speak the covenant promise. Genesis 28, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, uh, Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. These are, notice all three of the parts of the great covenant that God made with uh, the patriarchs. And in, and here's the best one, in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You're included in this too. God twice spoke directly to Jacob at Bethel, and that's why he called it the house of God. Sad things happened at Bethel as well. Very sad things. Wicked King Jeroboam, king of the new breakaway nation, uh, northern kingdom of Israel, started the golden calf cult there in Bethel. Uh, which caused Israel to stumble for hundreds of years until the northern nation was finally destroyed and they were taken captive. But the last mention of Bethel in the historical narratives certainly would have put a smile on Jesus' face. It sure puts a smile on my face because my hero, Josiah, King Josiah of Judah uh, uh, in Jerusalem, in his holy zeal for the Lord, his love for the Lord, went up to Bethel and destroyed whatever remained of the altar there, uh, the altar of Jeroboam, and he ground it to 
dust. Amen? <laughs> Praise God. That afternoon, the Lord Jesus and his disciples likely left Bethel and continued their journey north. Uh, another 10 miles, they reached Shiloh, the holiest city in ancient Israel, with the exception of Jerusalem. Now, why was it the holiest city? Because God's tabernacle rested here for over 300 years. The, the movable temple that was built during the Exodus, right, uh, that had the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the glorious, this was awesome, the glorious special presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right there in Shiloh. Shiloh became really the first spiritual capital of Israel. And maybe that's why Joshua chose Shiloh as the place to cast lots to divide up the land uh, in, in, in fulfillment of the covenant promise of God. Also in Shiloh, uh, Hannah, remember her prayer to God in the tabernacle uh, at Shiloh, asking God for a son, and God gave her Samuel. And he became the kingmaker who anointed both King Saul and also Messiah David, the first Messiah from whom our Lord Jesus descended. If they spent the night in Shiloh, the next morning they got up and continued their journey north along the Blue Ridge Walkway, uh, just a couple hours out of Shiloh, uh, because these distances aren't that huge, just a couple hours out of, uh, out of Shiloh, they began to see off in the distance Mount Gerizim at about 2,800 feet high and Peeking out from behind it, further north slightly, the even taller Mount Ebal, which is uh, 3,200 uh, feet high uh, or so. Here's a picture from the 1800s, uh, which helps us because this is before the building boom. Now there are houses everywhere, as you'll see in a few minutes, houses and buildings. But uh, this was taken on the famous road. The, the Lord Jesus came to uh, this place and saw Mount Gerizim there on the left. And straight ahead of him, Mount Ebal, uh, and as, as they came near to Sychar and to Shechem. Perhaps the same photographer uh, captured this shot of an ancient well at the base of Mount Gerizim. It was a place where there were a lot of wells. And then this next old picture is uh, the purported site of Jacob's well with Mount Gerizim in the background. And so... You know, you're reading along in, in John 4, and uh, the Samaritan woman says, uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and there it was. It was just huge, looming there, right next to them, and there in the shadows of that, that beautiful mountain. Uh, you couldn't miss it. Finally, just before entering Sychar, there was the, uh, the, the, what, what was left of the town of Shechem. Uh, on the left, a very key city in the history of Israel. Uh, in fact, here's a modern-day picture taken from east, from the east to west. Uh, the archaeological site of Shechem is there in the middle. Uh, they're still working on it, digging, uh, doing archaeological digs. Uh, there's Mount Gerizim to the left, Mount Ebal to uh, the north, and then and, and and to the right you see the outskirts of the town of Sychar, modern Iskar, literally in the shadows of Mount Ebal. So many important events happened here in Shechem. Shechem was Abraham's very first dwelling place in the promised land. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Uh, uh, God chose this place to repeat to Abraham the covenant promise for the very first time within the Holy Land. All the other times before, were, were, uh, the covenant promise was given to him uh, up north in Aram. And he said in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring I will give this land. And he said it right, right here. You see there? Right around there, right around Shechem there. Uh, maybe in the bottom of the picture, which is uh, probably around where Abraham heard these words of Jesus. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, also camped right here when he returned to the promised land after 20 years away uh, with his grandfather's relatives in, in uh, Haran. 
Uh, Jacob even bought a piece of property here, the second piece of property that bought purchased by the, the, the patriarchs. Uh, later, Jacob's son, Joseph, who by, by, this time, by that time had become the prime minister of Egypt, made his family promise to take his bones uh, and when, when, they, when they left Egypt and uh, bury them at that very piece of ground uh, that Jacob had purchased. And the scriptures say that Joshua did exactly that, uh, in, uh, and they kept that promise a few hundred years later. Now, these are the kind of memories that certainly passed into the mind of our Lord, through the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he gazed at Shechem and the twin mountains above it. Uh, but maybe the most unforgettable event in, the er- in that area took place right in that saddle. You see that saddle between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, a perfect natural amphitheater. Moses had commanded Joshua to lead Israel to these two mountains after the conquest. And he said to have half of the nation, it's a lot of people, stand on one side on Mount Gerizim to our left in this photograph and shout out all the amazing and merciful blessings that God promises to people who keep his covenant, are careful to keep his covenant. The other half of Israel would stand on Mount Ebal and shout out all the curses that would come to Israel. Uh, If they broke the covenant, failed to keep it, failed to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, because covenants have both uh, blessings and consequences, right? Blessings for keeping and consequences for not keeping the covenant. And Scripture says that Joshua obeyed this command of Moses to the T. And can you imagine how that valley shook with the shouts of God's people. Joshua 8 tells us that right after this event, Joshua built an altar for burnt offering on Mount Ebal. That was the curse mountain, right? The curse mountain. And Israel worshipped God there. And guess what Israeli archaeologist Adam Zertel found under a large mound of dirt on the slopes of Mount Ebal in 1980. They found this altar. And part of the altar, the part circled in red, dates back to the time of Joshua. Isn't that amazing? Just as Scripture says. It was a huge altar for burnt offerings. And there were the bones of thousands and thousands of animals there, sacrificed. But it gets better. Just four years ago in 2019, an American archaeologist and his Israeli counterpart, they were painstakingly sifting through, uh, through, through, the, uh, through the rubble that uh, the other archaeologist, Zertel, had put off to the side uh, in case they had missed something. And they found a tiny book, here it is, uh, uh, about the size of a postage stamp made out of lead, a strip of lead folded in half with writing on it. They knew that if they opened this little tiny book, it would disintegrate, so they looked inside using uh, modern imaging techniques. And what did they find etched on the inside of a little tablet found on Mount Curse? A curse etched on the tablet. A curse poem written in a form of the Hebrew alphabet that they even call Proto-Hebrew that dates back to around that same time of Joshua. Uh, And in fact, this curse tablet is now uh, the earliest example of Hebrew writing in existence and the earliest example of the uh, sacred name Jehovah, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, that, uh, that, that we've, we've ever had. And the writing in here pronounced a curse on anyone who would, would, would not keep the covenant. And here it is. Uh, notice the balanced chiastic form here. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. This is the tablet found on Mount Curse that dates back to the time of Joshua who likely built this altar 
in worship of God. Now, why do I bring all this up? You and I already believe in the complete historical reliability of the Scriptures, right? We, We don't need this extra biblical evidence or archaeological confirmation before we trust the Bible. But I really enjoy uh, it's fun for me and encouraging to me to find biblical, I, I'm sorry, archaeological confirmation of scores of uh, biblical names and places and even events that we previously only knew about uh, from the Bible. And that's, and here's the takeaway from all this. Christianity is a religion that's completely anchored to history unlike other religions. Take Buddhism, for example. If it were somehow proved that the Buddha had never lived, Buddhism would just keep chugging along, no problem. Why? Because it's not based on a historical event. It's based on precepts, books and books and books of precepts. But if the Bible's history isn't true, then it's not important at all. Not at all. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis said concerning the same, the same point. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. He's right. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. <laughs> Biblical history is reliable and undeniable. And we find great joy and happiness in that fact. Number two, the incurable curse. Let's go back to Joshua's altar. Why would Joshua choose Mount Ebal for his altar? He had two mountains to choose from. Why not worship God on Mount Gerizim, the blessing mountain, right? Uh, Isn't it blessing we want and health and wealth, your best life now? Name it and claim it. And he chooses Mount Ebal. Just a negative guy. Maybe. No, he wasn't. Mankind's greatest problem is the curse that has come upon all of us because of the, the, the sin of our, our father, Adam, but also our own part in that, in taking Satan's side against, against God and committing the greatest sin of all, and that is saying to God, I really like the stuff you made, and I actually need it. What if God turned the oxygen off just for a few minutes? Imagine how you'd feel in, what, about two minutes? God, please, please, turn it back on. We like the things he made. We need the things he made. But basically, we've said to him, we're not interested in you. And this is the greatest of all sins. And the sin brings the greatest of all curses because then in response, one of God's responses is, okay, as you wish, have it your way. You will be separated from me forever. And that is the greatest of all curses. Before the gospel ever arrived in her village, in northeast Cambodia, a little Tampuan girl, eight or ten years old, named Yet, was talking to her grandmother about spirits and demons and the creator God named Bakatai. And Yet said to her grandmother, I don't want to be a child of these evil spirits. I want to be a child of Bakatai. And she said, the grandmother said, no, that's impossible. We Tampuans can no longer know this God or become his children because we have, she said, an incurable, deadly boil in our souls, and we have no way of solving this problem. But this is the very problem that needs to be resolved. This is why Joshua put the altar on Mount Ebal, not Mount Gerizim. It's the curse that has to be taken away. And if this problem isn't resolved, if there's no reconciliation with God, 
You can forget about all the blessings shouted out on Mount Gerizim because your life and my life will be curses all the time. Mount Ebal all the time. And Joshua couldn't do anything about it. Not even with a thousand altars and 10,000 animal sacrifices. But the great and awesome good news of the Bible is this. There is another Joshua. Yeshua. Yeshua of Nazareth. Praise God. And there is another mountain besides Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It's called Moriah. It's called Zion. It's called Calvary. It's called Golgotha. It's called the Mount of Crucifixion where Messiah, Jesus, solved this problem that is the biggest problem in our lives. He did it by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for us. In all of God's righteous wrath, righteous wrath, just wrath, and curse against our rebellion fell upon a perfect lamb on that altar, not of stone, but of wood. And he said, it is done. It's finished. The curse is gone. And now for all who believe in Jesus Christ, it's Mount Gerizim and only Mount Gerizim. Now and forever, the curse is gone. It's nothing but blessings to us, the Bible says, because God has promised this. He's made this promise. For everyone who trusts in Christ, who died on this mountain and was buried under this mountain and rose again from this mountain, the curse is gone. There is no more curse. And even the greatest hardships in life, some of you are going through horrific hardships right now, but even the greatest hardships in life, the scripture says this, will only serve to bring you closer to the God who loves you so much. Though sometimes those hardships will bring you to him sooner as well. We've seen that, haven't we? As Tim Keller said on his deathbed last week, there is no downside for me leaving. Not the slightest. Think about that weary Samaritan woman living in the shadow of Mount Ebal, living under this curse that we see on the screen behind us. She was literally living out the curses of Mount Ebal every single day of her life. She was sinning against God, sinning against herself, sinning against her own children by her serial marriages, being sinned against by the evil men of Sychar who were also living out their cursed life in the shadow of Mount Curse, in the shadow of darkness and death. And that's where we are too, but for Christ. Then suddenly on those living in the darkness of the shadow of death, a light dawned. Let's read John 4, 39, our scripture from last week. Many Samaritans from that town, Sychar, in the shadow of Mount Ebal, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of uh, what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Praise the Lord. And this brings us to our text this morning. Let's look at John 4, 43, the very next verse. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For, I emphasize that word for, because we're going to think about it for a minute or two. For, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Uh, for 2,000 years, preachers have puzzled over this little word for, trying to figure out how, what's the connection between 
the, the logical connection between the Lord's leaving Sychar to go to Galilee in verse 43 and the truth that a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. Now, if John had said, uh, uh, after two days he departed for Galilee, even though Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, would that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. He's going to go there anyway, right? Uh, otherwise, it's like Jesus is saying, Jesus went to his hometown because no one honored him there. That's not what he's talking about. Often, Scripture writers will leave out a tiny bit of information, right? Uh, e- either uh, assuming that people uh, already know that information or that we'd be able to figure it out. Let's try to figure it out. And here's one way to figure it out. I've added some words in brackets in a different color here, uh, and perhaps this is the way to figure it out. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for he had to confirm and demonstrate to his disciples what he himself had testified, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That makes sense, doesn't it? He had to, he, he had to confirm it. Uh, it was essential, as it says uh, on this graphic, it was essential uh, that Jesus Christ go to places where he was unwelcome as evidence of the truth of John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And John 4, 44, a prophet has no honor uh, in his hometown. And so let's meditate on this next question. Are you surprised when those who are closest to you don't accept you and your gospel message? The Lord Jesus here basically says, don't be surprised. If they treated your Lord this way, they will treat you as well. Um, We can look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 uh, and following, and we will see the Lord Jesus say this in a different way. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And now the warning. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now the Lord here isn't saying that this tension in the family is the desired outcome of the gospel coming into a family, uh, but that those who are unwilling to accept this outcome, this kind of rejection, can't be his followers. And this is happening a lot these days as uh, the next generation embraces uh, ideas that are, that, are, that are unbiblical, very clearly unbiblical, uh, not, uh, that don't comport with God's truth. And, uh, and there be, there's tension between parents and children. Uh, and we, this is a difficult situation. And we need wisdom in these situations for sure. But at the end of the day, this is, we have to be willing to have that tension in our families because we believe the gospel and we are Christ followers. Now, back to our scripture. Here's another way that we can solve the riddle of that little word for And I've added some other words in brackets. And this is a really similar way to solve the problem. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And he wanted to show his disciples that that kind of rejection doesn't matter at all to a proclaimer of the gospel. (laughs) And it shouldn't matter, it shouldn't deter us either, should it? Uh, Not one bit. Um, But it does deter us. Let's meditate on this next question. Do you allow the fear of losing the esteem of others keep you from telling them about Jesus? Because it's always been the case that those who give out the good news receive little or no honor. Not much has changed, right, in the last 2,000 years. And in our generation, we just want to be liked, we want to to be nice, uh, want to be accepted. 
This is a subtle thing, by the way. Let me confess my own sin to you in this matter, the sin that the Bible calls the, calls the fear of man. Now, when I'm with somebody and I feel like I, that, that person ought to hear the gospel from me, I subconsciously, sometimes consciously, gauge the person. The Bible calls this judging. I gauge the person as to whether or not he or she would tend to reject my message or maybe and maybe look down on me for sharing the gospel. You ever feel this way? Does that happen to you? I'm sure it does. And here's the worst part. Sometimes that gauging determines whether or not I give the good news. And that is evil. That's just plain evil. As if all the power, as if the power to convince and save people is mine. <laughs> as if I know who's going to be a good candidate for Christianity, right? To become a Christian. Very foolish. In fact, this has happened to me more than once, and it's, it's a great rebuke to me. I'm with someone, I'm pretty sure that he or she will react negatively to the gospel, maybe look down on me, so I don't share the gospel, only to find out a few weeks later that someone else has shared the gospel with that person, and he or she has become a Christian. Ah. <laughs> what a rebuke. What horrible unbelief is in my own heart. The fact is, we don't know who's going to believe, and we're not real good at determining beforehand who will believe. You want to play a game? Let's play the game, who's more likely to get saved? Because in the, in the, in the Gospel of John, we meet lots of different people who come to Jesus Christ for various reasons. Who's more likely to get saved, a woman or a man? A sinful woman or a respectable man, cultists, Samaritans, or true religionists, hated half-breeds or purebred Jews, low-class people or the cultural elite, a man who desired Jesus for Jesus' sake, or a man who just wanted to have his son healed. We'll read that in a few minutes. And the Gospel of John, as I said, is full of surprises in this regard. And that brings us to our final verses and our final point, dishonorable motives, unworthy motives. And the Gospel of John is filled with a diversity of people who come in contact with Christ and a diversity of reasons and motives that people are coming to Him. Let's read the last few verses of this chapter, verses 45 to the end. So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him, praise the Lord, right? Having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Oh, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official, uh, this is like a royal official likely, uh, Basilikos, an uh, official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you, the you there is plural, unless you all, it was a general rebuke, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, beautiful words, go, your son will live in more ways than one. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when, this, when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Praise God. People come to Jesus with so many different motivations. And I just want to just clear things up right now. None of them is 100% pure and worthy of our Lord. 
Remember Nicodemus? He was convinced by Jesus' signs and wonders that this is a person that, that was worthy of at least meeting. The Samaritans and Sychar probably had better motivations. Scripture says that they were convinced through Jesus' teaching that he was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. In their own words, the Savior of the world. Uh, in contrast, and by the way, there was no mention of Jesus feeding the 5,000 Samaritans uh, or even of a healing that happened in Sychar. In contrast, the, in the passage we just read, the Galileans sought the Lord. Why? Because they had seen his signs and wonders at the feast and wanted, him, wanted to see him do the same signs in Galilee, like as if he were a magician or something. Please do some more tricks. And as we just read, the Lord rebuked that motivation. He said, unless you all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Later in John 6, the, the great bread passage, bread of life passage in John, we're going to see thousands of Galileans clamoring for Jesus Christ. Wow, how exciting. And yet, the Lord Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, signs that point to the Messiah, which was the purpose of those signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is the health and wealth motivation, and it's really the main, main motivation of all the religions in the world, except biblical Christianity. Your best life now. How about the royal official? What were his motivations? What was his motive in seeking Christ? He sought Jesus for one reason, as we just saw, and that is he desperately needed a healing from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the noblest of motivations. As a father, I completely understand his laser focus there. How about the man born blind that we'll see in a few chapters? Well, what was his motivation coming to Christ? Or Saul in Tarsus, why was he interested in Christianity? Well, so that he could arrest them and put them in jail and maybe kill a few of them. I mean, what a mixed bag of motives. But notice, none of these less than worthy motives could keep God from saving these people if God wanted to save them. If the Lord waited for people to come to him with noble, worthy, honorable motivations, the highest and purest of motivations, no one would be saved. Scripture says there's no one who seeks God to get God. But God is greater than our hearts. Amen? Oh, how much God loves us and is patient toward us. The Lord didn't say, come unto me, all ye, that, uh, all ye who have pure, noble motivations, and I will give you rest. Do you remember when Jesus in Matthew 19 told his disciples that it was impossible for a rich man to get saved? Remember that? And the disciples were, couldn't believe it because in their culture, wealth was a sign of God's blessing, and they asked a very general question, who then can be saved? They didn't just ask, well, how do rich people get saved? They said, who can be saved? And the Lord Jesus answers basically, no one. That was his answer, his first answer. No one can be saved. It was impossible, he said, Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible. It was impossible for Nicodemus to be saved, impossible for the Samaritan woman to be saved, let alone the entire village. It was impossible for these Galileans who wanted to see tricks from the Lord to be saved. It was impossible for the, the, this royal official to be saved. It's impossible for you to be saved. It's impossible for me to be saved. We are doomed to live forever and die forever in the shadow of Mount Curse. But then come these words. Jesus said, but with God, can you say it with me? All things are possible. Amen. It's my only hope. Mr. Huil Racham, a farmer, 
lived in the smallest and most remote <laughs> of all the villages in northeast Cambodia. I mean, it's, that village is like the most Nazareth of, of all the Nazareths in Cambodia. Like Alton Puans, he believed that powerful demonic spirits controlled every single facet of his life. In Huil's case, one particular demon was demanding an extremely expensive sacrifice, a buffalo sacrifice from him, in order to take off a curse. It would cost him a year's wages. Let that sink in, all right? A year's wages. And if he didn't do it, he knew that what awaited him was curses, sickness, and probably death. Around the same time, he began to hear rumors that there were tribal people who had done something unheard of. And that was they stopped sacrificing to demons. He couldn't believe it. Could this be? He walked seven miles on forest trails to a neighboring village of the Jirai ethnic minority group to find out if it was true. When he got there, some of his distant relatives said, yes, it is true. In fact, we believe in the Creator God. We believe that God sent His Son to live a perfect life, die in our place, and take all these curses on Himself, and He rose again, and He has complete power over all demons and spirits. They're like little tiny ants compared to Him. And he was amazed that curses that belonged to us would fall on somebody else, would love. Actually, Whale already knew some things about this creator God. Because Tampuans and Jarai and all the tribal groups in Cambodia and basically all tribal groups around the world already have a name for the creator God. In fact, it was Whale's own mother who had said to her granddaughter, Yet, that I told you about earlier, we can't come to Bukatai. We have an incurable, deadly boil in our souls, and we have no way of solving the problem. So Whale walked back to, uh, Whale walked back to his village, his head swimming at this news, his heart hoping against hope that it was true, that through Jesus Christ, they really could be set free from this constant, intolerable, unbearable bondage to these evil spirits. So he, he got home. He told his family. They didn't believe it. So he believed in Jesus by himself. Aren't you afraid of the spirits, everyone asked. No. God lives in me. His brothers mocked him. The village head threatened to kick him out. But he held on to Jesus, and Jesus held on to him. And one by one, his family members came to Christ, including Yet, by the way, who's written over a hundred hymns in the Tampuan hymn book. <laughs> and within a few years, the entire village, except for a handful of people, had believed in Jesus. Do you see this picture of their church? This was taken just a few weeks ago. Kids, teens, adults, elderly, all of them set free from sin and hell and demons and curses through Christ. Who cares about the curses on Mount Ebal when the Lord Jesus paid all of them for us Amen. and for these dear brothers and sisters? And I could show you 70 more pictures of churches just like this, some of them with fewer people, some of those pictures with fewer people in it, but some with as many as 400 people in it, all set free by, from curses and demons by our Lord Jesus Christ, who promises to do that for everybody. Now, what pure and wonderful motivation did Mr. Huel Racham cause Mr. Huel Racham to seek Jesus Christ? <laughs> you ask him, he would tell you immediately with a look of slight embarrassment on his face, that his first motive was to be freed from this crushing financial burden. But then he would say this, very quickly, he would say, that's why I came to Jesus, but then God gave me so much more. He gave me forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, who is now my Father, just like the royal official who came to Jesus asking for one miracle, and what did he get? Two, maybe more. 
certainly more, his whole household. And so I come to the end of my encouragement to you today. I really don't care what your motivations are. <laughs> Just come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. I don't care what your baggage is. You, you can't have more baggage than the Samaritan woman. Just come to Jesus. Bring your messed up life to him. Bring your life filled with turmoil. Jesus said, I will give you rest. Bring your sins. You can bring your sins to Jesus. Bring your atheism to Jesus. Bring your hatred of Christians to Jesus. That's where Paul was the day he got saved, right? Bring it all to Jesus. Come to Jesus and come with these three words. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Just say it right now. If you want to come to him, just say it right now. Say, Jesus, save me. Save me from this curse. Save me from my turmoil, from my sexual sins, my atheism, my pride, my racism. Lord Jesus, save me. And you know what? He will. Because he loves you like no one else has ever loved you. Dear Lord, we're just like quail. We have all of us since childhood lived in the shadow of Mount Curse, and we'd still be there, Lord. Foolish, disobedient, lost, cursed, slaves to various passions, passing our days in meanness and envy, being hated by people, hating them back. But then, oh, Yeshua, Yeshua of Nazareth, your goodness and love and kindness scattered the darkness, and we love you for it, Lord. You saved us, not because of our good deeds and worthy motives. You saved us, Lord, according to your mercy. You became a curse in our place. Oh, Lord God, please draw many people today out of the shadow of Mount Curse into the glorious light of your love, in Jesus' name, amen.